Have you ever encountered an inexplicable phenomenon that left you questioning reality? Now, imagine multiple witnesses experiencing a paranormal event that defies all known laws of physics and logic. In November 1974, a small 1923 bungalow in Bridgeport, Connecticut became the stage for what some call the world's most haunted home, plagued by unexplainable poltergeist activity. In a time before cell phone cameras, the accounts of witnesses held the key to unraveling these strange events. But why has this haunting case remained overshadowed and shrouded in mystery? What happened inside this home? Welcome to Nightmare Houses. On June 8, 1908, the Holly Crest neighborhood was developed by Palmer and Goodell in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Over the next two decades, the neighborhood developed with single-family homes in a lower working-class neighborhood, Brooklawn and St. Vincent's in Bridgeport, Connecticut. By 1923, a small, one-story, four-bedroom bungalow was built in the neighborhood on Lindley Street. It's a narrow, rectangular structure on a 2,600-square-foot lot with several steps leading to the front door at the center of the narrow end of the home. The home is simple, with a low-pitched front overhanging hipped asphalt roof, a flat facade with the primary entry in the center, and two casement windows on either side. It's located in the center of a densely packed neighborhood, initially next to identical-looking homes. The house is only 748 square feet and features two bedrooms and one bathroom. In 1924, the first occupants at 966 Lindley Street were a young widow and her two small children. Mabel Halsley Pendergrast Mary William Pendergrast in September 1911. Together, they had two children, William Jr. and Janet, and the family did well and lived comfortably. But on December 12, 1918, William died at age 34 after a short illness believed to be influenza. A few years after her husband's death, Mabel moved into the small bungalow with her two children, where they lived seemingly uneventfully for the rest of the 1920s throughout the 1930s. Mabel lived at 900 166 Lindley Street until 1954, long after her children moved out. The next resident was Miss Edith Edie Wilson. Miss Wilson taught voice and acting lessons out of the home for a few years in the mid-1950s, but she only lived there for five years, also uneventfully. By 1960, a newlywed couple purchased the tiny home on Lindley Street, Jerry and Laura Roberts Gooden. Jerry was 41 and Laura was 36 when the couple were married. It was their first marriage. Laura was born on June 6, 1924, in Hartford, Connecticut, to a working-class family and was half Native American. She grew up as an only child without other children, often isolated or in strict adult company. As a result, she had trouble making friends, and she was described as shy, anxious, and high-strung in her youth. She attended a local high school and went to work as a secretary. Gerard Jerry Joseph Gooden was born on June 7, 1919, in Ashland, Maine. When he was young, his family moved to Bridgeport, Connecticut, where he attended Bassock High School and was a Boy Scout leader. Following graduation, he registered for service in October 1940 and joined the Air Force, enlisting in April 1942. Upon returning to civilian life, he became a maintenance man at Harvey Hubble Incorporated, an electrical equipment manufacturer in Bridgeport. Jerry was Catholic, known to be practical and down-to-earth, 
and close to his siblings. It's unclear how or when Laura and Jerry met, but they were a compatible couple and married in February 1960. They soon purchased the small 1923 bungalow in November 1960. Their home was painted white with yellow decorative trim and a yellow storm door leading to the small enclosed porch covered by the deep slope of the front roof. A pair of swan decorations and a small fence were at the bottom of the front steps. The couple soon discovered they were expecting after settling in. On October 31, 1961, the couple welcomed their first child, Gerard Joseph Gooden Jr. At first, the couple thought they had a normal, healthy baby, but it soon became noticeable that their infant's head often hung down, though doctors initially claimed the baby was fine. When the baby was six months old, his parents grew more concerned and began taking him to specialists, where he was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. Despite the life-changing news, the couple dedicated their lives to their son, ensuring he was always with them and spoiling him as much as they could. They took their son to a clinic every week, but it was expensive. The couple were rejected for financial assistance because they were homeowners and were forced to pay for treatments out of pocket. Their son also needed specialized equipment, such as leg braces, a unique chair, and a fitting for his mother so she could carry her son without hurting her back. Their son also could not meet standard childhood development goals, needing constant care. Despite the challenges, the couple loved their son and would have done anything for him, and he was always with them. Then, a few years later, Laura's mother, 75-year-old Mrs. Anna Patrick Roberts, moved into 966 Lindley Street with the family for nearly four years. Laura was the primary caretaker for Jerry Jr. and her mother, while Jerry Sr. worked during the day. Eventually, the ability to care for both her elderly mother and disabled son became too much for her, and her mother was sent to a nearby nursing home, the Maple Lawn Convalescent Home, where the family visited her regularly for the next two years. In March 1966, Laura's mother died at the nursing home. Then, in September 1967, Jerry Jr. caught a bad cold after a family trip, and his condition deteriorated rapidly. His parents rushed him to the hospital. Specialists could not determine the cause of his severe illness, but he further deteriorated, his fever reaching 109 degrees. Friends and family rallied around the couple and showered them in hopes and good wishes for the little boy's recovery. But tragically, on September 27, 1967, Gerard Jerry Jr. died at six years old. His parents grieved deeply, but ultimately believed heaven was the best place for him. They saw their son as an angel. Once again, the couple were fully supported by their many friends and family. On their son's burial day, the priest asked the couple if they wanted to adopt a child. It was too soon for them to decide, and Laura was dealing with her own health issues. She had a hysterectomy scheduled to remove a tumor found before her son's death and underwent the surgery the day after her son's funeral. They feared having more children, fearing that they would have the same difficulties as their son. Following Jerry Jr.'s death, they kept a small shrine to him in the small living room for the next six months. But when they were ready to move on, Laura and Jerry dismantled the shrine for their son. They were also ready to inquire about adoption for another child. Their priest helped them with the adoption process in Stamford, Connecticut. Laura Gooden felt that a home without a child was not a home. So many in the community felt terrible for the hardworking couple who had lost so much. Letters of recommendation were written to support the couple to the adoption agency, declaring they would be the perfect and loving parents. In May 1968, the adoption agency called the couple with good news. They had a child that needed a home. An indigenous preschool girl from Ontario, Canada, who was born in December 1963. The couple immediately set out to get the child. Upon arrival, a small four-year-old girl was brought out and ran straight into the couple's arms. Marcia, 
sometimes known as Marcy, was quickly accepted by the couple, and she accepted them. She was renamed Marcia Lydia Gooden. When they got home, Jerry built Marcia a bedroom, knocked out the wall to the large closet in the living room, and made her room there. Laura promised Marcia that she would always be comfortable and have whatever she needed. By the time the Goodens adopted Marcia, she had already had a hard life at only four and a half years old. The youngest of nine, she had been abused and tied to a chair in her early life. She had been unwanted, and the family chose the Goodens to adopt Marcia because Laura also had Native American ancestry. Laura claimed that Marcia made their lives complete, filling the hole in their hearts, but not as a replacement for her son. However, friends and family came to feel that her parents were overprotective, likely attributed to the earlier trauma they suffered with their first child. But soon, the Goodens' parenting behavior was found to be somewhat abnormal, and the couple was tough on Marcia. Effectively, the couple began raising Marcia similar to how they raised Jerry Jr. Marcia was nearly never alone and always with her parents or family, similar to how Laura grew up. Laura was convinced Marcia only needed family, but would allow her to spend time with other children as long as she was there. Laura was often very strict, further isolating the little girl. Marcia was timid and likely due to her strict parents, often played alone. She liked doing puzzles, watching television, and playing board games. Marcia's favorite hobby, however, was art, and she was incredibly talented. She loved to draw and craft, always keeping her hands and mind busy, but as a perfectionist, Marcia would often tear up her work if she wasn't satisfied with it. Marcia was often very frustrated with her situation and seemed trapped by Laura. As a result, she latched onto Jerry, becoming something of a daddy's girl. When Marcia was transferred to a public school from the Catholic one she first attended, she began to experience severe bullying by her peers, primarily over her Native American heritage, with children calling her ugly and telling her she looked like a boy. In June 1973, Marcia Lydia Gooden officially became a U.S. citizen at nine years old, her name being mentioned in the local newspaper. Then, in the winter-spring semester of the 1974 school year, the bullying Marcia experienced became violent. A boy in Marcia's class punched her in the back and kicked her in the groin area, causing severe injury and placing Marcia in a soft back brace. The little boy who hurt her was ultimately suspended. The attack on Marcia horrified her parents, and they immediately removed her from the school. Marcia herself was known to school faculty and teachers as always being a quiet, polite, sweet, shy, and cooperative little girl. She left school for good on October 21, 1974, and received a tutor from the Bridgeport School District. It had been observed that Marcia, despite the hardship she had been through, never got angry or upset and kept all of her emotions pent up deep inside. In the first few years the Goodens had Marcia, they would notice minor, odd occurrences throughout their small home, but nothing significant enough to cause concern or alarm. However, the odd occurrences began to increase over the next few years. Things such as vibration of objects, taps, and other unusual but harmless activities began to happen. The Goodens were friends with the Hoffman family, who had a little girl around Marcia's age, who she would sometimes play with. The families would play cards at each other's homes every week, all alternating locations. Mrs. Hoffman occasionally observed Marcia sitting and rocking in her room, softly chanting. When she was questioned, Marcia claimed she was talking to her grandfather. Marcia struggled as she claimed her grandfather was angry that Goodens adopted her and took her from her family, as well as feeling of abandonment of being the only child in her family to have been adopted. Marcia had many teddy bears and believed them to be her only friends. When she would play with the Hoffman girl, Marcia showed her that she could talk to the bears, sometimes 
times not looking like she was the one doing the talking, like a ventriloquist. In 1972, the Goodens called the Bridgeport police. They complained about the rhythmic pounding they would hear throughout the night. This pounding had been ongoing for over a year, but by 1972, it was disruptive enough for police involvement. They said it sounded like the house was being stoned and were more annoyed than scared. Instead, Jerry believed the cause of the noise came from neighbors as a prank. The sounds occurred during the day and throughout the night. It would start as a tapping and end with a banging. Police suggested the Goodens record the sound, which they did on cassette. They could capture the sounds, which seemed to move from room to room. Then, one day after the police were called, a family that Jerry believed to be the source of the noises moved away, and the sound stopped, but only temporarily. In time, the sound started back with more vigor. The family began to feel frustrated because, despite trying with police, fire department, and the city's help, a source for the loud, persistent sounds against the home could not be found. The basement, foundation, and neighborhood were all checked. The pipes in the home were checked. Geological data was checked. All theories were explored. Only more questions were left with than answers. No one could explain the sounds or where they were coming from. Sometimes the noise would stop for up to two weeks, but they always returned. Jerry noted that the noises, which the couple only noticed eight years into living in their home, seemed to start in November 1968 and occurred annually. However, as a practical man, Jerry also mentioned that the loud sounds coincided with plans to develop a condominium next door to 966 Lindley Street. The Goodens protested against the development of this condominium. There was a belief that the developers could retaliate against the Goodens for interfering with their project. But something else was unexplainable and ruled out as sabotage or vandalism. The sounds began to permeate the home's interior, from which it seemed to originate. Despite every technical cause, nothing seemed to be the reason. Eventually, firefighters and the city officials determined they could do nothing to help the Goodens. But then, in the summer of 1974, the experiences in the Gooden home became more than just auditory occurrences. One night, Jerry and Laura noticed what appeared to be a disembodied hand in their window. Upon investigation, the Goodens found nothing outside. One night in the early fall, Laura heard three knocks in quick succession on the front door late at night. No one was there when she opened it, but wet footprints were leading down the front steps, which Laura found odd since it was a dry night. Other odd occurrences included doors that opened and closed and chairs that seemingly moved around alone. The Goodens began to confide in close friends about the strange events they witnessed, but by this time, family and friends who came to the house would notice the unexplainable events too. But on Thursday, November 21st, 1974, the sound of glass breaking was heard while the family was eating dinner with some family friends. Rushing to the sound, the couple found the interior window pane of their master bedroom had been shattered from the inside, while the outside pane was still intact. They were confused and unable to explain the damage. The next day, the banging and other sounds increased drastically. The strange events also turned violent. Over the weekend, the unexplained events reached their peak. On Friday, November 22nd, following dinner, the family moved into the living room, Laura in her favorite recliner, and Jerry in his. Marcia spread out on the floor with a puzzle while her parents watched TV. But soon, unexplained sounds were noticed from the master bedroom. Upon entering, Jerry noticed the shades were drawn up, and curtain rod and curtains had fallen, but the window was closed, and nothing obvious could explain what had caused the collapse. 
but it happened again just as they fixed it up and were about to leave. Bizarre, they decided to leave it alone this time, and then the banging started, becoming louder and more powerful. Both Jerry and Laura felt the powerful force was intelligent. Marcia and Laura became fearful of the pounding, while Jerry seemed more annoyed. After a while, the pounding suddenly stopped, and the family went to bed. On Saturday, November 23rd, that morning the Goodens had a trip planned to see family and were out of their home most of the day. When they returned that evening, they noticed a few things at home out of place, such as Marcia's TV, generally on a shelf in her room, was now face down on her bed. But while Laura was putting away groceries in the kitchen, the couple saw the dishes piled in the kitchen sink begin to lift on their own and violently hurl and smash themselves on the wall or the dark red carpeted floor. As Jerry tried to clean the plates, five knives flew up from the kitchen knife block screwed into the kitchen wall. The knives launched towards him, but Jerry ducked and they missed him. When Jerry examined the knife block on the wall, the entire block, screws and all, pulled away from it and flung itself across the room. Then, all seemed quiet, although Laura and Jerry were on edge, waiting for another occurrence. When nothing more happened, Jerry began to clean up the broken dishes, and Laura returned to putting away groceries. But then, Laura saw two legs from a nearby table lift up into the air, flipping the table over and causing Laura to scream. Next, the 300-pound refrigerator slid across the floor and slowly lifted approximately six inches off the ground, hovering. Then, the appliance slowly rotated to the right, about a quarter, and slowly set itself back on the floor, leaving it noticeably out of place. The heavy 23-inch TV console made of solid wood, also located in the kitchen, began to slowly tilt the screen side down, and then slam hard onto Laura's right bare foot, smashing two of her toes. Still bringing in groceries, Jerry rushed over and dropped the bags on the couch to tend to his wife. He lifted the TV console and tended to her bleeding foot. After that, things seemed to quiet down. The family made dinner, ate, and then returned to the living room to watch TV. When Jerry entered the kitchen to turn off the light, he felt like someone was there with him. He heard a thud, noticed the kitchen table had tipped, and was now leaning on a chair. He found it strange, but he reset the table, switched off the light, and returned to the living room. During a commercial, he got up to make some coffee. When he was finished and about to leave the kitchen, he heard a loud shrieking sound followed by another thud. This time, the kitchen table had flipped entirely over, now on its top resting on one of the chairs, with the other chairs having been pushed aside. Jerry fixed the furniture, but decided it was time they all went to bed. Marcia was tucked in, and Laura went to the couple's room while Jerry went to shave before heading to bed himself. While in the bathroom, he heard a loud thud and scream from Marcia's room. He ran into her room, shaving cream still covering half his face, and found the TV had fallen off the shelf onto Marcia's ankle. She was only bruised, and Jerry disconnected the TV from the wall and removed it from her room, leaving it in the hallway to avoid it falling on her again. Unable to sleep, the whole family went into the living room and put on a movie. At one point, Marcia got up to use the bathroom, and from the other room, her parents heard loud banging and the little girl screaming. Objects in the bathroom, such as the shower curtain rod, towels, and toiletries, flew across the room. Marcia had to hold her hands up over her head to protect herself. When Jerry checked on Marcia and got her out of the bathroom, he noticed the curtains in his and in Marcia's rooms were down again. After that, the family settled back in the living room and fell asleep watching movies, hoping the next day would be better. When Jerry woke up around 8.30 a.m. on Sunday, November 24th, he went into the kitchen to get coffee and make breakfast. 
breakfast. However, he entered to find the table and chairs flipped over again. He was annoyed and upset, but again he straightened up the mess. But then he realized the refrigerator was blocking the outside kitchen door. In terror, he ran to tell his wife back in their bedroom, but as he entered, they saw a silver crucifix and a picture of Jesus saying, bless our home, come flying off the wall and crashing down onto the floor. They heard a loud crash in Marcia's room and found that the large wooden bureau had fallen over, barely missing Marcia's bed. As Laura entered the room, another crucifix was pulled off the wall with such force that it came crashing down and shattered on the floor. In the living room, the reclining chairs rocked back and forth. The TV was making the sound of a doorbell repeatedly. Laura called her friends, the Hoffmans, and exclaimed that strange things were happening at the house. The Goodens then called to a neighbor outside who was walking her dog, telling her that the house was attacking them. In front of their neighbor, a green sofa on the front porch lifted off the ground and hovered about a foot in the air before slamming back down. The frightened neighbor ran back into her house and soon came back with her father, a policeman. At this point, the Goodens were visibly upset on their front porch. Jerry exclaimed to the officer that some evil force was inside their home. The police officer then told the family to remain on the porch while he took a look inside. The home was a complete mess, with furniture and household items strewn chaotically about or smashed on the floor. The living room TV was shifted off-center. When the police officer went to reposition it, he walked away before the TV slid back out of place on its own. Then, in front of the police officer's own eyes, he saw the refrigerator float up, leaving him dumbfounded. The officer immediately called for backup to the small Lindley Street home. Within a few minutes, more Bridgeport officers arrived at the scene. They quickly determined a burglary did not cause the damage in the home. While conducting the interview, one of the officers saw a TV on the floor. He picked it up and began to walk away, but within moments, he saw that the TV was now floating in midair. When he went to investigate, he found nothing holding it up. It then began to sway back and forth, with another officer entering the room in time to witness the strange activity. When more officers arrived, they all discussed the strange scene. They needed to figure out what to make of it. The officers that had witnessed the strange events were frightened by what they had seen. The officers checked the home but found nothing besides the mess out of the ordinary. While Laura and Jerry were hysterical over the events, Marcia showed no emotion. Around 11 a.m., an officer called dispatch to explain the situation and asked for the fire department to come check out the house. Before the firefighters arrived, the bureau in Marcia's room fell over again. A crucifix in the hallway ripped off the wall and smacked into a police officer's chest, causing him to run out of the residence immediately. Ten firemen showed up at the house, and Jerry tried to explain to them what had happened. While he was talking, the TV in the kitchen fell onto the floor all by itself and was witnessed by the assistant fire chief. Then, some plastic roses in a vase on top of the TV console began to move, and the smell of sulfur and ozone were observed. Suddenly, the TV console began to lay face down on the floor. But the commotion inside the house was attracting a gathering outside the house. The arrival of police and fire brought curiosity seekers, some of whom came inside the tiny house to see what was happening. The strangers were asked to leave, but getting them out was difficult. The deputy fire chief didn't know what to do and asked the firehouse chaplain to come over. Meanwhile, the green reclining chair Marcia was sitting in began resetting its position between upright and reclined, with Marcia having no control. She scrambled out of the recliner on the third time it happened, and Jerry took her into the kitchen. A chair flew back from the kitchen table, and dishes flew out of the dish rack. The dish rack slid across the counter, where Jerry caught it before it fell. The chaplain arrived just in time to witness this, and was briefed on the situation. He inspected the recliner, but couldn't find a cause. He then felt a dark presence around him, and said an evil spirit was in the 
home. He blessed the house with a kit containing rosary beads, holy water, and a Bible. However, when the chaplain reached for the holy water, it tipped over, just out of his reach. When he reached for it again, the same thing happened. He decided at that point it was best not to anger the spirits and read a quick prayer and did a blessing. At some point, an officer heard the family cat appear to say bye-bye and went outside, refusing to return to the house. A few officers were too afraid to go in based on what they were hearing and seeing. A neighbor came by, Mary Pascarella, who was part of the Psychic Research Center in New Haven. She tried to get Marcia to do some psychic tests, but nothing happened. Marcia, tired of the testing, got upset and lost her temper. Eventually, Jerry's brother and his family took Marcia out of the house for lunch and away from the activity at home. When Mary Pascarella left the Goodens' home, she immediately called Ed and Lorraine Warren, who were interested in poltergeist claims. Ed and Lorraine Warren were a married couple who became well-known for their work as paranormal investigators and demonologists. They were highly regarded in paranormal research and were involved in many high-profile cases of hauntings, demonic possessions, and other supernatural phenomenon. They founded the New England Society for Psychic Research, NESPER, in 1952, one of the first paranormal investigation groups. The couple traveled extensively to lecture about their experiences and share their insights into the supernatural. Ed, Lorraine, and a priest headed to the Lindley Street home. When they arrived, a large crowd was outside the home, and it was still growing. Ed introduced himself to the family. The Goodens were unfamiliar with the Warrens, but their friends knew of them and the work they did. Ed brought his tape recorder and filled it with witness statements. The Warrens met up with one of their friends, Paul Eno, then 21 years old and a seminary student interested in the paranormal, and brought him over to the Lindley Street home. Jerry appreciated the help and the fact the Warrens took him seriously. Marcia enjoyed the new visitors and all the attention she was receiving. Ed told Paul to always stay with Marcia, as it was often common in hoax scenarios that children were often the perpetrator. At some point, everyone in the house heard a strange noise from the master bedroom. In the empty room, a large crucifix slowly drifted down onto Laura and Jerry's bed. Everyone saw it. When everyone returned to the kitchen, they noticed the quiet living room where Marcia sat on the green recliner. Then, the recliner, with Marcia still sitting in it, began to rise to the ceiling. Then, the recliner somersaulted, tipping out Marcia before completely rotating and smashing onto a table. Marcia screamed as she fell out, and Laura rushed over to her. The police officers that had witnessed it were dumbfounded. When they tried to tip the recliner back into place, they found the object heavy to lift. After that, banging noises and various objects continued to move or fall over. A lamp shattered. Ed Warren observed knives in the kitchen rotating on their own. Jerry was convinced evil spirits were trying to kill them. Police continued to investigate the source, ruling out any nearby construction. When electric and plumbing inspectors were called to the scene, they found everything in working order. However, they too would witness strange events inside the home. Around 2 p.m., the police finally left the scene as there wasn't much more they could do. By this time, nearly 2,000 people had appeared outside the Lindley Street home. Around 4 p.m., local reporters from New Haven and New York showed up. Eventually, the Associated Press and other national news outlets covered the story. Police were needed for crowd control, and the Warrens left shortly after. Reporters were not allowed into the home, and eventually the crowd outside began to get carried away by bringing a children's coffin and throwing garlic. The crowd outside also witnessed furniture and other objects floating in the window. In addition, the decorative swans outside the front steps, as well as the cat, were heard speaking. Their small home was now at the center of a compelling paranormal event. Ed Warren had instructed the family to leave the room if something was happening in the room they were in. The following day, the Warrens, Paul Eno, and a priest 
Celeste returned to the Gooden home. Reporters were still outside their home, which now included the international press. A few reporters were given limited access by friends or family, but otherwise, everyone was quiet. And then, a reporter came up with a theory that Marcia was in the occult and wrote about it in the paper. Marcia was also spotted that morning in the green recliner, but this time was manipulating the chair into moving back and forth. It seemed as if Marcia was trying to draw attention back to her. By this point, traffic on Lindley Street was backed up over a mile, and the street was impassable. Inside the home, Lorraine Warren became nauseous whenever she entered Marcia's room, and while the priest talked to Marcia, he gained insight into the little girl's loneliness and insecurities. In the kitchen, Lorraine's left hand developed a second-degree burn. Paul Eno noticed the smell of sulfur just as Lorraine's burn developed. There was no explanation for either the burn or the smell. More unexplained phenomena occurred that night as furniture and objects flipped over independently. The Warrens felt they needed an exorcism, believing a demonic force had entered the home. By this time, the crowd outside had become overbearing, and people were now pounding on the windows and calling for the family to come out. A reporter from the Bridgeport Post was brought into the home, where he also experienced objects flying around independently. And then, they all witnessed what appeared to be a smoky, gauze-like mist splitting into four distinct entities before them. The misty figures began to move toward Marcia, but they were blocked by Paul Eno, who felt resistance to the entities. The four entities then merged, filling the house like a large, dark cloud. Everyone immediately ran out of the house in terror. Paul called the Warrens to come back to the house immediately. A priest began going room by room, blessing the home with holy water. The priest and the Warrens witnessed other mist-like entities, and one that seemingly had horns coming from what appeared to be a head. The Warrens did not believe the entity was human. After the blessing, the family, Warrens, and others returned to the Lindley Street home. Marcia was on her way to bed when suddenly the little girl was yanked back, flying violently through the air and slamming up against a wall. She wasn't injured, but terrified. Marcia didn't want to be in the house anymore, but her parents decided they were staying. It was as if the entity was attacking Marcia. When she was seated, her chair began to lift off the ground. Instead of her room, Marcia slept on the living room floor with the other adults in the house that night. In the morning, everyone left, and it was clear the local police were ready to move on from the commotion. But as time went on and officers monitored their house, Marcia was observed to be fooling around with the recliner as if trying to make something happen, and again suspicion fell on the little girl. She was also observed pushing a table out with her foot to hit her father, and then Marcia confessed. She claimed she was making the sounds, moving the objects, and the voices. After confessing, Marcia went into her room and cried. It was all dismissed as a hoax, with Marcia receiving most of the blame, and that seemed to be it. The Goodens thought the Warrens fabricated things and were upset. Marcia was taken for a psychiatric examination. Reports indicated the confession and hoax, but the Warrens never believed it. However, the Warrens were dismissed as just fame-seeking ghost chasers. There were also rumors that the Warrens drugged everyone into a hallucination or used witchcraft. The Goodens agreed that their daughter was responsible for the hoax and were surprised by her confession. Sometime later, three men were arrested for attempting to set fire to the Goodens' house, but were caught before anything serious happened. The men claimed they were there trying to cleanse the house of the evil that lived there. For a while, curiosity onlookers would continue to get a glimpse of the now-famous home, but unexplainable activity continued at the Gooden house. In December 1974, the Goodens had another paranormal investigator come to the house, but requested no publicity. A scientific investigation was conducted in the home, but nothing conclusive came from it, except for the fact that no one seemed to believe Marcia was the source, as occurrences were happening 
happening when she wasn't home. Despite legal advice, the Goodens wanted to avoid publicity and only talk to the reporters once, for free. Their lawyer also warned the Warrens not to use the Goodens' names or mention the case in lectures. In the end, the Goodens assessed the poltergeist activity cost roughly $5,000 in damages to their property. In January 1975, the Goodens listed their home for sale, but no one wanted to buy the tiny nightmare house, and the listing was eventually taken down. The home was vandalized periodically, egged, windows broken, and car tires slashed as a result of the reports. In January 1976, the Goodens painted the house white and removed the decorative swan statues at the base of the front of the steps to make the home less recognizable. Little is known about Marcia after 1983, but it appears she fell out with her adoptive parents sometime after the poltergeist claims. She was last seen in Bridgeport, Connecticut in her late teens or early 20s. Eventually, she started going by Marcia Jean Godin and moved to Ohio. Between 1994 and 2014, she accrued various criminal offenses, mainly relating to speeding, driving under suspension, and driving under the influence. She died of apparent natural causes on February 10, 2015 at the Ohio Health Med Central Shelby Hospital in Shelby, Ohio at the age of 51. She hadn't lived in the area long, and her landlord and neighbors didn't know her well, saying she mostly kept to herself. Jerry and Laura continued to live at 966 Lindley Street until the end of their lives. Jerry retired, and Laura worked for Aveco Lyoming as an assembler. The Goodens took out three loans against their house when they owned it, the first in September 1975, again in 1985, and again in 1987, indicating there may have been some financial strain, although it appears the loans were always paid back. In 1987, the condominium was completed right next to the Goodens' house, leveling two homes to the left side next to theirs. This was the condominium they had been fighting the development for for over a decade. The condominium is a multi-unit, multi-story building set back from the street. The residential parking lot is located where the homes once stood. On Friday, June 11, 1993, Jerry and Laura Gooden were driving their car, with Jerry at the wheel and Laura in the passenger seat. The couple was driving north on Route 25 in Monroe, Connecticut, when around 7.45 a.m., Jerry drifted to the right side of the road and hit a real estate sign, utility pole wires, and finally, a tree. Upon arrival at St. Vincent's Medical Center in Bridgeport, Laura was pronounced dead. She was 68 years old. Jerry survived and was listed in satisfactory condition at the scene. The accident was under investigation, but nothing appears to have come from it. Jerry lived at 966 Lindley Street following his wife's death. He subsequently died on September 24, 1997, of natural causes. Following his death, the home was sold on April 16, 1998 for $20,000 and is still owned by the same person today. No known poltergeist or paranormal activity has occurred there since the Goodens reports in the 1970s. In 2014, author William J. Hall completed The World's Most Haunted House, featuring first-hand witness accounts from 1974, 1975, 2010, and 2014. This book is highly recommended if you're interested in this case and want a more detailed account. So what do you think happened in that house? Many witnesses swear that what they saw was unexplainable and impossible for a 10-year-old girl to fabricate. The noises and odd occurrences started when Marcia was introduced to the family. In the paranormal community, it is widely believed that children and preteens can invoke a spirit or poltergeist activity. In Marcia's case, the activity seemed to grow as she got older, indicating she could have been the source. Poltergeist activity is a paranormal phenomenon characterized by 
unexplained disturbances or disturbances in a particular location, often attributed to supernatural entities or psychic energy. The term poltergeist is derived from the German word poltern to make noise and geist, meaning ghost, roughly translating to noisy ghost. Unlike traditional ghosts, poltergeist phenomena are often associated with the presence of an individual, typically an adolescent or someone experiencing emotional distress. This individual is called the epicenter or focus of this activity. Paranormal researchers and skeptics have offered various theories to explain poltergeist activity. Some suggest it might be psychokinesis, where the individual unknowingly manipulates objects and events through their psychic energy. Others propose it might be a psychological or subconscious expression of repressed emotions. Right now, there is no scientific evidence supporting the existence of poltergeist or the paranormal in general. The poltergeist phenomenon occurred in that house while Marcia, Laura, and Jerry Gooden lived there, with Marcia seemingly as the epicenter. But was it all a hoax, as Marcia claimed? Did she do this for attention, or was there a paranormal phenomenon around this little girl? Despite the witness claims, this case of poltergeist activity is less famous than another, more well-known case that happened a few years later. On November 13, 1974, Ronald DeFeo Jr. of 112 Ocean Street in Amityville, New York, killed his parents and four of his siblings in their Dutch colonial home. In December 1975, the Lutz family purchased 112 Ocean Street, the former DeFeo residence, and within 28 days fled the house in terror due to poltergeist activity. Amityville is another case Ed and Lorraine Warren famously worked on. In 1977, Jay Anson wrote a novel, The Amityville Horror, based on the Lutz's recounts of the events. In 1979, the novel was made into a Hollywood film of the same name. It's likely that the Amityville Horror, which came after the Lindley Street events, with both a novel and a movie, overshadowed the Gooden story, especially with so many dismissing the claims thinking it was all just a hoax. The credibility of the events surrounding the Amityville Horror is still out for debate. It should be noted that the novel The Exorcist was released in 1971, creating a significant cultural impact with Hollywood producing many demonic-themed movies during the 1970s. On the outside, the Goodens portrayed themselves as a religious, law-abiding, happy family, but we don't always know what's happening behind closed doors. And it leaves one more disturbing question. Was Marcia being abused at home, thus causing the intense, possibly demonic, activity? Of course, there were other strange things surrounding the family. Laura's mother and child died not long before Marcia entered the Goodens' lives. Could this have been their spirits? Did Marcia and the Goodens create the whole thing, somehow tricking everyone into thinking they saw something that was ultimately fabricated? The couple appeared to enjoy the positive attention they received whenever tragedy struck. Was there any alcohol or drug abuse in the home that no one knew, potentially contributing to the bizarre activity? We will never honestly know what happened inside that home. The family at the center of it is long gone. Today, the home has a red roof, red trim, white body, and front brick stairs. The enclosed front porch was removed, with the facade set back slightly and the overhanging hipped roof more apparent. It's been quiet ever since. So, is is this the world's most haunted house, or was it the people within? Thank you for listening to Nightmare Houses. For more information, including photos and references, please visit www.nightmarehouses.com. Until next time, goodbye.